Welcome to Fright Night. What up, everybody? We have another great episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast coming at you this week. As always, it's your boy Mansfield, the movie monster boy, with my co-host Derek. How are you doing, Derek? I'm pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah, you're pretty cool, Brewster. (laughs) And we've got an awesome guest on this week. We've got my co-worker, my buddy... Kelly Sherman. Hey guys, good to, good to be here. I'm very excited. Hell yeah. Awesome. Well yeah, we will get started with the movie in a minute. Uh, as you can guess, we are covering Fright Night, and as you can also probably guess, we don't have to tell you which one we're covering. <laughs> so yeah, we'll jump into that in just a minute, but let's back up and let's give Kelly a moment to introduce himself and kind of tell us a little bit about his background with movies and horror. You're the first guest we had in a while that this is your first appearance on our podcast, because we've had a, a lot of repeat guests recently. So. Yeah, and this last year yeah well awesome well yeah I, I you know Manny first threw the idea at me uh I'd say honestly I think it was the beginning of of 2020 before craziness hit yeah and we had kind of <laughs> talked about it briefly and I was like bro I would love to be on the podcast you know and Derek I, I you know he had talked about you a little bit and I was like Derek seems legit so of course why wouldn't I want to talk film with some some fellow you know cinephiles but uh I, I guess my my start to film so i've been in the industry on and off since my tenure in louisiana uh, i moved to the state nice. in 07 yeah when when the tax credits hit i was like yo i think now is the time to kind of pursue but uh i've made some great friends and i've worked on a couple you know projects and productions here and there but my love for film predates all of that uh, which is, I guess, the greatest love story of my life. Uh, other than I do have a five-year-old son, and he doesn't really get into to the horror stuff. But he, I think he's, you know, he's got yeah. the, the the celluloid in his blood too. I'm feeling so. There you uh, go. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool. Very cool feeling for a dad to like feel like he's passing that the baton on yeah. to his son. But um, I have memories, many memories as a child of like, you know, my my real father uh, who wasn't in my life for very long. But like one thing he did impart on me is horror films and like cinema. And like that was the biggest thing that I, I guess I always like gravitated towards. And there's probably more like, you know, subconscious stuff there where like that's my, you know, always been the kind of my connection to him. Like not knowing anything about, you know, like what a, a scary movie was. I remember him sitting me down and, and turning on the original Romero Night of the Living Dead. Right. And like, <laughs> <laughs> seeing these these images and it, it was just you know I, I guess finding this this like this affinity for like something that that you don't know what's being fucking shown you know in front of you and like you're seeing these people yeah. like eat other people and you're like what what is this because it's crazy and I, I actually was thinking about this uh Manny and Derek before I jumped on tonight I was like it's crazy that like I really feel like the first time my dad showed me Night of Living Dead was the same age that Elias is now my son just turned five and I was like I'm not about to make that a tradition you know <laughs> but I, yeah. Like it just kind of clicked, and I was like, "That's crazy to think that I was the age that Elias was when I f- like first really started loving movies." Uh, and it just was crazy that horror actually was my like my gateway, my intro yeah. to just cinema in, in general. Because before that point, like I, you know, I I was a, a Detroit youth. Nobody was talking about being filmmakers, you know, in Detroit. You know, I do have this love for Evil Dead and everything Sam Raimi. But my siblings, my half siblings, actually are from Royal Oak, Michigan, which is where Sam Raimi and and Ivan and you know, the whole Raimi Raimi's family is from. So. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've always thought that was a, a cool kind of like draw. It's like, oh, well, you know, Sam Raimi's from Michigan. So, you know, I, yeah. I can still kind of rep Michigan. But um, it, it started with Horror Man. And horror has always just been that constant. Like, yeah. I'll have my action movies that I like throughout the year. I'll have my dramas that I like. I'll have different genres. But like horror, like never fails me. And I, I don't care how cheesy and how B-rated it is. I always, my throwback and, and what I always say is like some of the 
most prominent filmmakers today started on that B-rated level. And, you know, like Peter Jackson, you know, like Meet yeah. the Feebles. That's uh, the first person who I thought of was Peter Jackson right 100%. there. 100%. Yeah. Dead Alive. I was literally talking to my brother the other night in the car and I was like, Zingaya. And he's like, What's, <laughs> what the fuck is Zingaya? And, but, you know, like I, yo, I love horror just in my blood, man. And yeah, that, I, I would love to direct a horror film or horror short or whatever it may be one day. And I, we've we've tossed around a couple ideas at you know, my production company, Brighton breezy films but i don't know we'll we'll see we'll see one day one day that's awesome something that i i kind of have noticed especially when i was starting this podcast and we've been at this for what two years now aaron yep the best opinions when it comes to cinema be it critics or just people who have knowledge of the industry or a love for the media the best ones and the ones whose opinions i respect the most are the ones who have not only just a love for horror but almost arguably horror might be their favorite genre of movies i mean because one of the things that kind of inspired this podcast and will continually bring them up for ever and ever is f this movie and f this movie you know they cover everything on their podcast but they always fall back on horror they seem to have the most passion for horror movies so that's awesome i I love to hear that i mean this isn't like an original thought necessarily but horror and comedy are arguably two of the most difficult things to make because it is all about drawing an emotional response it is all about timing it is all about execution i was gonna say timing yeah you have to be like at your peak to really pull that off well and the fact that that's where so many people start partly because like it's an easy way to kind of get your foot in the door do something relatively cheap make a splash but the fact that horror is just such a good way to hone your filmmaking skills and really learn how to do editing and timing and cinematography and composition and just like all the other things that from a technical standpoint you have to excel at to do any other genre horror and comedy are kind of the two that you can start in and learn arguably everything that you need to know as far as filmmaking is concerned so it's definitely difficult to do right and it's a good way to kind of get your chops i think what's what's really cool is like i think the best horror filmmakers normally they know how to blend the two so like i I know i brought up sam raimi earlier but one thing i love about sam raimi and this hit me this is maybe a a few months back uh it was just a me and an ex where i showed her drag me to hell for the first time she'd never seen it hell yeah and she was like oh let's watch it and i i remember the theatrical experience sometimes there's just some theatrical experiences that just stick with you right and it's almost like (laughs) it's the meat on the bones that like you know it'll never go away and i i remember like very vividly and i also remember leaving the fucking theater after watching Drag Me to Hell and everybody was hyped. Oh, hyped, but bro, no bullshit. Yeah. It was super late. But I remember we we parked in the Cinemark car park. And if you remember there's a very prominent scene where the the grandma or the I forget her the character's name, but she attacks the the main actress in the car park. But remember she sees yeah. she sees the scarf kind of float by in the car park. But I remember like being fucking scared shitless. <laughs> Normally I don't like I'm pretty like solid when it comes to horror films. But like I think what's great is like Sam he's so good at horror specifically and that's why I am super excited about Doctor Strange too yeah I, I was like there's nobody who can like bring a great sense of horror to Marvel and make it work yeah and make it work with their comedy 100%. and everything else they bring 100%. into it yeah all right well um let's go ahead and run through a few like recommendations or things that we've kind of watched read listened to consumed recently since we have a guest on like always we will let you start sir okay so yeah go ahead and hit it kelly what you got oh i was thinking about it uh so lately it's crazy like i i try and definitely watch as much horror as i can some of them are going to be throwbacks so not 
not necessarily new stuff. And I'll be honest, like there hasn't been a lot of new horror out. Like Jason Bloom and Bloomhouse, to me, they put out the freshest, I guess, stuff right now. Like from I Love Invisible Man. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But then they had the one that uh, I saw the, and this is gonna lead into one of my throwbacks, I guess, or one of my things that I'm gonna bring up. But I saw the trailer for the the Vince Vaughn where Freaky he turns it's like Freaky Friday, yeah, Freaky. And but what's crazy, like super high Rotten Tomato from critics and audience, and yeah, supposed to go on a date one night and just it just didn't pan out. But uh, I do want I actually want to check it out just to see how it is, I guess, because Bloomhouse actually they, that label puts out a lot of a lot of good stuff. Like we've got the two uh, David Gordon Green two Halloween sequels, Halloween's yeah, which they've been shooting in North North Carolina, I think. The first one was supposed to come out this past yeah. month, and yeah. that's kind of disappointing because you know it is what it is. But pandemic, uh, but we'll be getting them next year. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited. Uh, but I went to the movies and, you know, uh, this literally was like the first time in months. And this was maybe a month ago or whatever. But, you know, of course, adhering to COVID guidelines. So and I do something where I'll pick this seat and then I'll pick the seat two doors over or two over. So, like, it literally gives me like six seats. That's the way to do it. <laughs> kind of an asshole move. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, no, if you're going to go. Yeah, if you're yeah. going to go to the theater right now, that's the, that's the best way to do it. But Get Out. Get Out was back. And really? I went and rewatched Get Out and I you know I've seen it multiple times but I've only seen it once in theaters and rewatching it man you know big fan of Jordan Peele it's one of those films where like taking a break from it and not seeing it maybe for you know it's been a couple years I forgot like how much I really like that movie like really yeah. really like that movie on every level and there were small things that they're so on the surface level you know Jordan did such a good job at, in, in his direction where like I didn't catch it until this is maybe like the sixth or seventh time I've seen it and it just happened to be back in the theater and i don't know if y'all feel the same way what was kind of cool about this is the the chick that i went on a date with like i don't know if y'all sometimes y'all will rewatch films of course age to me plays a big part uh, and this is something I love to talk to people about, but age plays a big part on how relevant a film is to me or how I relate to it. Totally. A hundred percent. Yeah. As I've gotten older, like there are some films that I rewatch. I'm like, man, why did I not like this? You know, 15 years ago, but then also who you watch it with. So watching it with her and getting to know her a little bit and kind of bouncing off of her in certain parts, cause you know, you lean over or whatever and whisper, but there are certain things that I didn't catch before. And I was yeah. catching because of who I was watching it with. And I was like, bro, that's kind of cool, bro. Uh, like you know and and, <laughs> and there were some really really cool moments that like i just didn't catch and i was like bro I, I guess push jordan peele up even more even though i thought us was not as good and not as balanced as as get out um i still enjoyed us for what it was but i'm excited to see whatever his next thing is i had a similar experience recently too that i know i brought up on a past episode was how uh my wife she had never seen the original ghostbusters which is like a top 10 movie all time for me yeah and i was like you've never seen fucking ghostbusters <laughs> We're sitting down and watching it. It was like that scene in um, Zombieland. Like, you've never seen Ghostbusters? <laughs> and, like, watching that with her and showing someone that movie for the first time, again, was just... It, it made the experience even greater for me. Definitely. I actually did a double... Like, uh, there's one night I just couldn't sleep and I did a back to back, but I watched the original West Craven Hills Have Eyes and then I watched okay. the uh, Alejandra Aha Hills Have Eyes remake, which that remake still like blows my mind. And like, it's better than it should be, yeah, 100%. 100% is better than it should be. And what's crazy, I don't mean to go off on a tangent real quick. I don't know if y'all saw on YouTube, Warner Brothers has been releasing, uh, Manny, I think I sent you the, the Dark Knight documentary that went over the trilogy, but yeah. Warner Brothers has been shooting, or they've been releasing these featurettes and these documentaries. Well, Derek, they did one on Mad Max Fury Road. Hell yeah. It's great. 
It's great. And I knew how tumultuous the production was, but I didn't know how fucking tumultuous the production was. Like, Tom Hardy had, up to a point, no respect for George Miller at all. Yeah. Man, it sounds like you saw it, so you you know, but you got to watch it, D. Like, it's it's really legit, but... I'm going to do that, yeah. Oh, bro, it's so good. But there there's, there's a real, like, humbling point where I'm like, to me, that's the vindication that... I guess a director would would want and would look for. That's the humbling moment where like Tom was before this crowd in front of cons and he's like, I didn't fucking get it until just now when I watched it and I fucking get it. He's like, so I need to apologize to George. I knew he was brilliant, but I just didn't know how brilliant he fucking was. It, it just, bro, it's such a good documentary and how, you know, one thing I love stressing to people who just aren't as versed to the, the industry is like, unless you're Steven Spielberg, Danny Boyle, even Scorsese, like if you're doing anything in the studio system you are going to get notes and you're going to get pushed yeah. back and you gotta fight 100 you gotta fight it's gotta be your baby and you gotta fight like you would for your child and and that's what's crazy is like people think like oh well, you know scorsese's made it yeah, which he is the cream of the crop but like he's still going he's to it. fight it's 100 yeah 100 the entire time and it seems like you know we're seeing this shift we're now uh and i'm not trying to go too much on a tangent but now like going towards streaming and these offerings by these streaming platforms like netflix where they're like yo not only will we give you full budget distribution you know and whatever kind of window you want if as far as exhibition may be concerned but like we're giving you full creative freedom and and that's something that a lot of these filmmakers are kind of jumping to and on the opposite side of Scorsese where you know he is again the cream of the crop and you know these companies are approaching him to do stuff the other benefit is you have these smaller directors who are like trying to get their product out there and trying to start and Netflix is offering them the same level of creative freedom and just here's a budget have fun do what you need to do so it's good for both sides of that spectrum you know and you've got all these voices getting opportunities where a traditional studio probably wouldn't offer it to them because it's too risky or it's too whatever you know that's so awesome i mean i, I think as a as an artist as as any type of creative like the biggest thing you want is because most of us have a vision right and you want you want to of course push yourself more than anything but i, I think that's that would be for me me like the biggest I don't know and I have I have not faced that yet but I feel like if things do continue to push forward and and I do find a career in you know fully in the industry as a as a director or whatever like I feel like that would be the most hindering thing is to feel like yo you've been drowned out or you know you've been you know I guess watered down in a way you know to where yeah. it, in your heart it's I know that's not really me you know what I mean and because it's got five other people's voices on it now yeah yeah well let's uh let's bounce over to Derek real quick what you got as far as uh recommendations go I just got one I honestly really have not been digging into too much horror the last couple weeks uh with the holidays and everything else happening yeah but the one thing and I brought it up on an old episode older episode when the PS5 was first being like revealed and like they're revealing what exclusives are gonna be on the PS5 I sat down and I finally played the Demon Souls remake. I, I was wondering like, how different are the graphics really going to be from four to five? You can only get so far until you're really just, you may as well just shoot a FMV movie kind of thing. And my dumbass underestimated that because when I popped in okay. the remake of Demon's Souls, this is like the most gorgeous game I think I've ever wow. played in my entire life up until this point. And so for those of you who don't know what Demon's Souls is, it is a kind of gothic, I'd say horror action role-playing game. Came out back in 2000. 
2009 for the PS3. The whole thing around this game, this was like the thing that kicked off the Souls game, quote unquote, um, that we now see all over the place of just, it's challenging for the sake of challenges and overcoming that challenge is what kind of grips players. I get it. These series of games are not for everybody, especially the original Demon Souls. It's near unplayable for a lot of people. <laughs> I, I'm Yeah, you are among them. Like, that's totally not my bag as far as games go. A lot of our a lot of our friends are that way, like just completely dismissive of these games. And I get it. I understand. I'm not trying to be dismissive. It's just not my type of game. Yeah. I hit my head against the wall to like get good for hours. <laughs> Tell me a story. I don't like playing games for the challenge. Like that's where I am definitely like a casual. But yes, that is a very casual mindset when it comes to these games, because these games do have stories that go real fucking hard. It's just you have to look below the surface a lot of times okay. in these games, because it's kind of one of those things where like the story happened and you're kind of in the rubble and you're discovering kind of putting pieces together yourself so like bioshock yeah kind of like bioshock but even less handholdy not that bioshock is handholdy but less obvious you don't get audio logs in the souls sure. games so you kind of have to piece things together on your own terms and there's like youtube videos and all that that go way into the lore for as deep as you want to go or as surface level as you want to go but the lore in these games are always pretty solid demon souls is probably the most traditional storytelling because it basically is just this doomed kingdom the king of this kingdom got greedy and wanted to basically use the old magic of this world but in doing so awakens this thing called the old one which is very cthulhu like i guess yeah okay and reawakening this ancient evil it starts causing this fog to slowly consume the whole world and within the fog kind of like the mist are demons that are now like basically sucking people's souls out of their bodies and then the people who have had their souls taken from these demons turn insane and also become monstrous you create your own character and everything this unnamed knight entering this kingdom you basically get sucked into the story of like trying to save this kingdom put the old one back to sleep and save the world the monsters designs are amazing very demonic looking some of it traditional some of it more cthulhu-esque the combat in the 2020 version they streamlined the fuck out of it which they really needed to because the 2009 original is very dated okay. and so they kind of took the best elements from like dark souls 3 and bloodborne and incorporated in this game so the action is a little more fast paced which uh it definitely needed that i'm already addicted to the idea of overcoming challenges i took out the first boss phalanx which is not a hard boss to fight but it is you know it, it is when you're at the beginning of the game it still feels like an accomplishment i've only died twice and one of those deaths was a story required death and the other was a bullshit death that totally wasn't my fault <laughs> but I haven't quite hit that first wall yet with a boss which I will you know you always do you hit that wall and you just have to slowly overcome it yeah these games have done something that no other game has ever done for me I've never had this much of a sense of accomplishment than when I overcome a boss that's been giving me trouble like where everything clicks where I get the strategy down where the plan comes together and like I scrape by and like just there's something about the formula and it took me a long time to really get the appeal of this game so when i got it i got it and that's why like this is my recommendation for it granted i understand if this is not your cup of tea again it's like the raw oysters of video games not everyone's gonna <laughs> be down for this but for those of you who like the souls game if you can get your hands on a ps5 during the this holiday season or sometime next 
here like once things once becomes more available you got to do yourself a favor and get the demon souls remake it's so damn good it's so damn pretty the monsters are horrific so if you want that horror factor it's there very dark fantasy amazing like i don't know what else i can say about this game i've made two characters i made daywan the deplorable which he's just a shirtless barbarian with a big sword that runs around and hits stuff and then my second character is more of a nuanced priest-like character i'm kind of more playing with because I, I actually like i dig the magic and like using the magic in the game a little bit more and every other dark souls game i made day one the deplorable and he either uses a shield and a sword or just a two-handed sword and i wanted to try something a little bit different this time around but yeah demon souls 2020 ps5 exclusive launch game check it out cool can i throw one more recommendation out real oh, quick oh absolutely yeah, yeah. Go for and it. it's crazy how this slipped my mind but just kind of listening i was like oh i did i actually did see something recently that was new i had never seen it and it is a newer film but uh dr sleep hell yes i loved it bro blew my mind like for me it definitely has that nostalgia kind of feel because for me i'm like when you think about pop culture right there's some stuff that just like will always live on and i guess that is the whole point of pop culture but the shining and just the genius of stanley kubrick like is just oozing right pulsating in yeah. in that film but i remember first seeing and i didn't see it in theaters i watched it on blu-ray but uh i watched ready player one and just the whole section of the shining it's the only good part of that movie bro, <laughs> and it's not even in the book <laughs> was, was like was was so good was so good but to go back to it watch dr sleep and i was blown away the acting the narrative like the story from beginning to end just how fucking gruesome certain deaths were yeah well i don't want to spoil anything but Derek, that's what made me think about it is when you said sucking the souls but yep. uh you know if you haven't seen it there's a group have you seen it Derek? have you seen dr sleep i haven't but i know the gist of it i know i know okay. what character you're talking about she has a top hat so i know exactly you're talking about yeah, i forget her name but i love her in the mission impossible films rebecca ferguson yeah i love her so much but anyway so there's a scene that is so hard to watch i know exactly what scene you're talking about 100 yeah. because i have a, a child and like bro it is painful to watch as a father and like like i needed to pause and like fucking like stop for a second you know one thing that i feel like the alluring thing of horror has always been to me it's actually like real world shit you think about the maestros of horror whether it be dario argento or Wes Craven or, you know, John Carpenter, whoever it may be, the thing that they've always pulled or the way they've pulled us in is they, they've shown us the shit that we don't want to see, but we have to open our fingers yeah. to watch, right? It's that feeling of like, this is almost too much, but I can't look away. And it's crazy that a lot of the shit that they brought to us and put on the film came about from, I guess, real world experiences that they had in their own lives. And I think that's the greatest thing. David Cronenberg, to me, is one of the best examples of that. You know, of course Romero as well I love I love how with Romero you know every film deals with some kind of like you know under level subject so Night of the Living Dead really touched on racism and and just interracial dealings like strife 100 yeah. like one thing i love about that film is uh, i remember i was taking a, a film class the the question was brought up and it kind of hits a little bit harder being a man of color at the end you at a, if you guys remember it goes into the end credits after they've shot the, the character of Dwayne, the the black lead and you know he's dead now because you know they shot him because they saw him walking in the house and then it turns into like steals i don't know if y'all remember where it turns yeah, into like yeah. steals leading into the credits they don't touch this black man's body. I remember my, and I'll never forget this, and it's it's just a question that begged me to 
dig deeper and go deeper and ask more of a film and of the actual, you know, cinema being laid before your feet. But he was like, you know, were they not touching his body because he was a zombie or were they not touching his body because he was black, right? Yeah. And like, you know, because I don't know if you remember, they literally hooked that motherfucker and threw him into the fire with the other zombies. So like, it's crazy how horror has always been that genre that could open the door to have more of a social commentary. And again, nobody, in my opinion, has done it better than George Romero whether people see it or not. So, you know, one was about racism and Dawn of the Day was about commercialism, you know, kind of the death of, of us by, I guess, buying into that need to a vanity. That or, comfort level. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I've got some thoughts on that in a second because that's actually one of my recommendations. Yeah, uh, Land of the Day, which a lot of people didn't like Land. I love Land. Land is good. Land was just about hierarchy, right? You know, fucking Dennis Hopper in his tall tower hovering above us as that dude when, you know, you've got those levels. And I think Paris Parasite did that so well as, as well. And literally, you know, when we talk about how powerful literally the moving image could be, if you're really looking. So you remember that scene in Parasite when literally the storm is hitting and it's raining profusely and literally goes to that wide shot and it's them running down, literally running down yeah. to the lower level or the bowels of, in a way, the society, right? That's where they lived and that's where they kept their space. But but horror for me has always been the ripest, the ripest fruit, if that makes sense. Yeah. What's a pressure valve it's kind of 100%. one of those things where it allows you to like get out all these things that you want to say but you don't want to just overtly have 100%. someone on screen say them you 100%. want to like make it into an allegory or a satire or bring out those illusions through a different story but it allows you to still deliver a lot of the undercurrents of what you're trying to say but in a more like accessible sensational like let me draw people in and then they're going to kind of get something that they didn't expect to take home from it yeah well there are two things two art mediums that especially recently have kind of come under this lens which I don't understand one is comic books because I'm a huge comic fan and I, I keep up with comic news and the happenings within the world but I'm also noticing this in the horror genre in general and it's I think it's just a small subsect of the fan bases just saying like oh everything's so political now like remember when horror and comics weren't political and like things were yeah. great then it's like no 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 you idiots it's people who want to bury their head in the sand and <laughs> not pay attention yeah. to what's going on yeah horror and comics have always been political yeah. what in the hell are you yeah. talking about and like one of those examples for horror always being political and always tackling social commentary is exactly what you just said with your re recommendation which is talking about george romero in general aaron has made that same argument especially with dawn of the dead the original dawn of the dead i think yeah so yeah exactly you you nailed it on the head there cool cool well um let me throw some recommendations at y'all real quick and we will hop into the movie um, I got five movies to run through real quick, but I will start with Dawn of the Dead since that's kind of where we were. Finally got my copy of Second Sight's big 4K Blu-ray restoration of dude, it. Dude, you post that on our Twitter and it looks beautiful. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, great, dude. It has all three cuts of the movie. It's nice. got the con cut. Um, it's got the Argento cut and then it's got the theatrical cut. There was an Argento cut? Yes. So he put his own edit together. Goblin did the entire score and not just elements of the score and he kind of cut out some of the humor and made it more of a streamlined horror movie so I'm curious to see that cut because I've never seen it um, but there's loads of special features and all kinds of good shit on there but that restoration that they did is gorgeous it's insane awesome. that that movie looks as good as it does so I'm very happy that I picked it up I think Diabolic who shipped it to the US they were pretty cheeky with getting that to me uh, right before Black Friday because <laughs> <laughs> like we talked about the movie is all about American hype 
hyper-consumerism and how we get used to all these comforts in our lives and we kind of let our guards down and bad stuff kind of comes in and before we know it, everything's falling apart around us because we're not paying attention to what's most important. So that movie certainly has a lot to say about American society, and that movie is 40 fucking years old at this point, yeah. you know, so it's not like things have changed that much. I can't wait till we actually cover it on this show. Yeah, and I think we should do them in order, you know, I think yeah. that would be like the easiest thing to do is let's just knock all three of them out, you know, over the course of a year or so and just, you know, we'll do them in order, um, which is what Heather and I were doing. We watched Night of the Living Dead when I got that Criterion Blu-ray, um, and now that we've got Dawn of the Dead, we watched the theatrical cut of it, so pretty soon we're going to break out Day of the Dead. Um, so yeah, that Dawn of the Dead from second site is gorgeous for people who don't have a 4k player or don't have an all region unlocked player i hope some u.s distributor gets their hands on it soon but the rights over here are weird thanks to one of the producers which is why it's basically not available so hopefully that gets resolved in the near future for people who don't necessarily want to import that set Next, Heather and I watch Daughters of Darkness, um, which is a French-Danish vampire lesbian art drama. Very, very cool-looking movie. Very cool-sounding movie. It's bananas. Like, it's kind of like watching Last Year at Merry and Bad, except with vampires and lots of bad haircuts. <laughs> I Google image search. It's the 1971 movie, right? Yeah. Yeah, this looks kind of nuts. <laughs> it was interesting. I had never seen it before. I've heard a lot of good things about it. About it. I had a couple of other podcasts that had mentioned it. I, I enjoyed it, certainly. It's definitely wild and kind of out there, and there was a lot of over-dramatic, insane kind of bullshit in it, but overall, um, it was pretty enjoyable, and Blue Underground actually just put that one out on 4K as well, because they're getting into the UHD market, so apparently they have a 4K version of it, and, you know, we just watched the version that was on Tubi for free, and uh, even it looked pretty solid. It is classified as an erotic vampire film, so I think you watched the softcore porn. Yeah. <laughs> it, it wasn't that bad although like two of the lead actresses in the movie were adult film stars if i remember correctly i also watched his house which is on netflix derek you and i kind of spoke about this movie a little bit but i didn't really tell you a whole lot of details this is a newer horror movie that is kind of popping right now it is about a couple who are refugees from africa who end up in england oh yeah 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 this is movie sounds really interesting it's one of those situations where the uk government says like okay cool we have a house for you you cannot leave this house you cannot get jobs you cannot do any of these things like you just have to stay in this place that we're gonna put you in until we can like really fully figure out what to do with your status and everything else and of course the place that they put them in is a shithole like it's a literal falling apart shithole apartment and they start to be haunted. It's less of a like haunted house kind of thing and more these people are bringing a lot of their baggage and their past with them and that's kind of what is wearing at them and it's just little by little how that runs them down and the fact that they're still facing a lot of you know obviously racism and xenophobia because they're foreigners and just all these other day-to-day -day difficulties in their like regular life like just getting from that apartment to the store around the corner and having to like read a map and read English and all these other things that they're struggling with. And then on top of that, they have like fucking ghosts showing up in the night, like, <laughs> terrorizing them. But there is a moment in the movie that I feel really dumb for not picking.
picking up on the subtext and what was happening, but the movie is so fucking good at manipulating you into like where things are going that you don't see it coming. But there's a moment in the movie, and it's not like a twist per se, but there's a moment where like you finally find out some information. I fucking bawled my eyes out. I was just punched in the gut okay. by a horse, like crying. It was the most intense, like fucked up, just dark, gut-wrenching moment when you like finally learn some information about what's going on. Man, it like hit me really hard and I was not expecting that like I watched that movie on my day off like in the middle of the afternoon and it punched me so fucking hard so I would definitely recommend people check that one out again it's on Netflix it's called His House very solid it's a first time director I'm very curious to see what they do going forward the only real star that you would recognize in it but maybe not recognize is Matt Smith and he's kind of disheveled and not quite looking like himself so you might not necessarily recognize him but otherwise it's a lot of low-key kind of new actors that are in the movie as well but yeah great execution i would definitely recommend checking it out it's got some really solid scares in it and just really striking visual stuff too there's these moments where like the characters are kind of in their own heads and like seeing visions and it's just really visually striking stuff that looks amazing so yeah i would definitely recommend that one i watched shutter's documentary called leap of faith william friedkin on the exorcist it's literally just william friedkin in a chair like talking about the making of the exorcist and that's all there is to it so it's like dan Aykroyd on ufos kind of style (laughs) similar yeah except like not chain smoking the entire time but yeah william friedkin's one of those directors that you can just listen to him talk for hours he's just so enthusiastic about filmmaking and he's so well viewed well read he knows just so much shit and he can pull references to all kinds of things and i mean he's talking about music and fine art and all these things that inspired the exorcist and kind of where certain ideas came from and it's a really really solid documentary if you're actually into filmmaking and or if you're like into the exorcist if you want to like really see some behind the scenes motivating factors for how that movie got made again that one is on shutter and then the last thing i'll bring up and i will only bring this up kind of as a joke again derek and i like the marvel movies in general they're fun they're a good time right and this one was billed as the first horror x-men movie oh christ do you watch the new mutants i fucking hate watch new mutants yeah was it good so this might be a hot take i was not bored okay okay i mean (laughs) like i know that doesn't say much that's honestly about what i expected i enjoyed it more than dark phoenix well that's a low fucking bar (laughs) (laughs) i know right but for everybody saying like this is absolutely the worst X-Men movie, I enjoyed it more than I liked Dark Phoenix. I enjoyed it more than the first fucking Wolverine movie with all the bad special effects in that one. Yeah. I honestly probably liked it more than X-Men 3 and yeah. Apocalypse. Yeah. You know, like it was not that bad. The VFX in that movie looked like dog shit. And the story is bad, but I love the cast. I think that's the main thing that I'm responding to is just, I really like the cast. I think they are all perfect for those roles. And I love those characters. Those are some of my favorite X-Men characters in this movie. And I just hate that they're in this awful movie. And the funny thing is, and I guess, fuck it, spoilers for like New Mutants, who gives a shit. But the funny thing is, it's in the timeline that Logan is in. Oh, wow. Because they literally pull scenes from Logan into this movie. So it's directly in that timeline where, like, the kids are being experimented on by Essex Corp, which is 
fucking sinister, right? Yeah. And so it looks like we're never going to get Mr. Sinister in any of these movies after they've hinted at him like three times now. And the other thing that kind of bums me out is we're probably not going to see the demon bear in a movie for a long time now, too. Oh, yeah. Which the demon bear is one of my favorite kind of almost storyline is so yeah. And just even that entity, the demon bear. Yeah. Besides that one story about it and the new mutants run, it's still an underutilized antagonist that would make for some great horror content within the Marvel Universe for comics and really even for the movies if they wanted to go that route. Yeah. And so much of the movie kind of centers around like, you know, Danny Moonstar's whole power, which is like she can make your deepest, darkest fears come to life and be tangible. So it's her getting dumped in with these other kids and all of their fears are coming out, whatever. Like that's kind of the only like horror hitch to the movie overall. You know, and there's definitely nitpicky stuff I didn't like. Like they're weirdly racist toward Danny Moonstar. Oh man. Like for no real reason. Like (laughs) that bums me out. (laughs) They're all supposed to be like bad kids with Tood and that's why they're all here because they're the troublemakers, right? But like why y'all gotta throw Native American shade at this girl that y'all don't know? Like that seemed weird and out of place. You could just be assholes to her in general (laughs) if that's where you're trying to go with these characters and not throw like the racial stuff in there. You know, because otherwise one thing I did like was they kept Rain queer. So like the only actual relationship in the movie is a queer relationship. And like that's true to the comics, that's true to those characters and that was interesting for them to do in this movie. But like they don't call direct attention to it. They don't like make it a thing necessarily. Just it is what it is. But then they do go out of their way to like make Pocahontas jokes and shit. Like it was kind of weird in that sense. So yeah, like I hate watching it this afternoon just for shits and it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be but it's definitely like not good. But, you know, there we go. There's the horror entry for the X-Men universe, and now it's it's done in the coffin. So, there we go. All right, cool, cool. Let's go ahead and get started talking about Fright Night, guys. I'm excited. Um, so, yeah, this is uh, 1986, Tom Holland directed. Tom Holland, of course, the writer of The Beast Within, Class of 1984, and Psycho 2, um, as well as the director of Child's Play, the original one, and uh, some Tales from the Crypt episodes and Thinner. So, yeah, we are getting into Fright Night. What would you do if you accidentally discovered the house next door was occupied by something not human? Something horrifying. Something unspeakably evil. No one believes you. Nightmare. Not your mom. They did kill a girl over there. Not your girlfriend. Charlie, is this some sort of a trick to get me back? Not even the police. Look, I know it's crazy. I know that, but look, Lieutenant! It knows that you know. You'll do anything to protect yourself. But it will do anything to protect its secret. If you love being scared, this could be the night of your life. 
So, with you coming on as our guest, why Fright Night? What's the significance of Fright Night for you? Why specifically this movie was the one you like absolutely wanted to come on and talk to us about? This is something that I always find fascinating when we have guests who recommend a movie to us. I actually been thinking about that a little bit today. It's like how how do I distill it down to like what Fright Night means to me? I think Manny, I threw a couple of film titles at you like when we initially talked, but like Fright Night's just and it's funny that, it, you know, majority of, of horror, especially in that time frame, there wasn't, of course, much representation to like look up to a, a black lead, you know. But like, I felt like I was Charlie Brewster. Like, I felt like I was Brewster. Yeah. And like, and I think not only like felt like, you know, I was him, but like, like I wanted to be him. I wanted to be, you know, I think the greatest thing about films is it is the greatest form of escapism, right? But I, I think they create these worlds where like, you know, especially when we're younger, and we see certain things that we think is cool or hip or whatever. But I always remember, like, just that opening. Uh, you know, I would imagine that it was on some kind of dolly crane. Yeah. That tracking shot where you, like, see his room. Yeah. Yeah, where you come up to the room and then, like, we go straight into the, the window and then we see Peter Vincent is on the channel. But then what was great is, like, the audio from the TV. But then also you hear Brewster and, and, and his girl, like, talking. Because you're getting both at the same time. So it's a little jarring that Tom, you know, opened with that because you don't know what what you're hearing exactly yeah and then when we kind of creep in right this is very like voyeuristic kind of feel but like i just remember like i wish that was me like i wish i wish i had the girlfriend and i had the neighbor who turned out to be a vampire and <laughs> yeah it was yeah. the coolest thing and i hate to like well i don't hate but like only in my head it actually makes sense i feel but i feel like it's the same reason why we like the goonies or monster squad right yeah, like we, yeah. you want to be those kids you see 100%. some of yourself in those kids and that's like what you kind of aspire to you want to be these cool kids that are in this movie and their friends and their adventures and everything else 100 yeah. percent. but to even go further is like who really wants to put themselves in a situation where a vampire fucking moves next door right like because then you gotta yeah. then you gotta deal with the fucking vampires so movies have always been my my form of escape and my imagination always run, runs rampant but like Fright Night was just it was always just that common denominator when it came to film and actually like touching on what we talked about earlier just it's how it made me feel like sometimes yeah. I watch a movie and people are like oh that movie was not the best right and I'm I'm like okay I, I, I can draw and talk to exactly why you say what you're saying. I get you. I respect it. But like, let me tell you why I fucking love this movie. You know what I mean? And like, yeah, Fright Nights, it's never fell in that bucket of like, not a good movie because it is a really, really good film. There's just certain parts like Jerry Dandridge, you know, having fucking Chris Sarandon as this very like... Easily my favorite part of the movie. Anytime that he's on screen, everything kind of comes to life. Like, he's just so big and brings so much charisma to Enigmatic, that role yeah. and so much just sexual Sexuality yeah. and in general like he's just the ideal vampire yeah. he's everything that you want like out of a vampire character kind of perfect 80s take on it you know and yeah every time he's on screen it lights up and the thing that's so impressive is he's, he's even more menacing at least he was to me and more scary when he was still looking completely human when he turns yeah. into the monster it's effective and it, it's impressive especially for the 80s because that all looked like it was practical effects. Yeah, it's all still it, practical, practical. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was impressive don't get me wrong but he just carries himself in such a way that it honestly reminded me of when he makes the heel turn in the Sentinel to go all the way back to when we cover that. But that was him like throughout this entire film. And he just has that suaveness, but that sinister nature to like even his posture yeah. and his mannerisms that like he was more effective even just as a human. Something kind of to go off what you were saying though with um, relating it to childhood and like kind of always wishing you were in a way Charlie Brewster. I get that a thousand percent. The big phobia 
fear phobia relation to this movie I was going to touch on was I think all of us at some point or another as kids, if you had any sense of imagination or adventure, wanted to discover some horrific dark secret. That only you knew about, yeah. That only you knew about and specifically around your neighborhood. Yeah. And granted, in actuality, if there was something like that and you discovered it, you'd be fucked and it would yeah. suck. <laughs> in actuality, it's blue velvet. <laughs> 100%, yeah. But the mystery is like what intrigues you because I, I remember these were memories I hadn't thought of in a while until I watched this movie and I was thinking about it after watching it. But like, same thing. I, I've had a couple moments of being Charlie Brewster where me and a, even a gang of my friends around our neighborhood and, and our neighborhood was suburbia New Orleans. It wasn't even like the interesting quote unquote dangerous parts of New Orleans. It was just suburbia. But I remember we had a park right in the middle of the neighborhood and, and before Hurricane Katrina hit it had a ton more trees in it to the point where you couldn't see uh, like if you looked through the park unless it was like in the middle of the day you couldn't see the other side of the park because there's just so many trees and foliage and granted this was like a square mile or two square miles is impossible to get lost in you just walk forward and you immediately hit the road on the other side but like in the middle of the night this park became like our haven of this is where the, all the dark shit in our neighborhood <laughs> yeah. goes down it was y'all's haunted house yeah, yeah and like to the point where like I slept over at this kid's house and he had a sleepover party and he actually lived across the street from the park and we had convinced ourselves that we saw one of his neighbors go into the park with a sack and a shovel and like go into the middle of the park <laughs> and like we were daring our, each other to like go into the middle of the park in the middle of the night to see if we could find him. The next day we run out there looking around where we thought he buried a body and of course there was nothing there and I mean there was even like this old bench in the middle of the park. It was an old stone bench and in actuality it was probably just the founder of the park or whoever the park was named after. Like they put it in the middle but it was so worn out from like rain and everything else it just looked old there was this rumor going around me and my friends that like that was the haunted bench and if you sat on that bench at like midnight you'd be visited by this woman in white kind of like situation so like yes <laughs> those were the kind of memories that this movie brought up in me the sense of not only just childhood fears and all that which are kind of obviously on display but the sense of mystery and excitement and the thing the wild thing is charlie brewster isn't even that young in this movie yeah he's a fucking teenager like almost college age but they still are able to capture that childlike wonder and horror also to that sense of helplessness that too yeah adults don't believe you even though you're not like a child child you're still the boy who cries wolf you know and that whole desperation of you know something to your core you know something's going on you know something's wrong and nobody will believe nobody will like listen to you nobody will like see what you're seeing you know and that's one of the like most classic thriller horror movie kind of tropes to roll with from a storytelling standpoint is just how do you convince others of what you know you know and that's also one of the other best parts of this movie is the Peter Vincent character as well and he's the character I think I like the most in the movie even though like Dandridge is such a good fucking villain yeah Peter Vincent is absolutely the heart of the movie he is like that Obi-Wan sensei character that has to come in and teach you the ropes and he's supposed to be the confident one and I like that in this movie that's always the fun part is when you have that character who's supposed to be the expert and in reality like they're just fucking clueless and they have no idea what they're actually doing and they're a giant chicken you know so like that character is a blast in this movie as well too so I think that's the thing is like the movie itself the plot is very simple and straightforward but the characters of this movie are what everybody latches on to and that's what everybody
everybody like really connects with. I am glad you brought that up because I have a confession to make. Right after I watched this, I wasn't initially impressed. It was fun. I saw why this movie has not even a cult status, but just a lot of endearment, like the horror community in general. I got it, but at the same time, I was like, Eh, compared to a lot of stuff we've seen, it's not my thing. It wasn't until I sat with the movie for a longer period of time that I really got it. And the thing that I kept coming back to were the characters. Yeah. I have three MVPs in this movie. Chris Sarandon, for the reasons we've discussed. Amanda Bierce as Amy Peterson, just for the fact that she's able to do a wide range of being the innocent girlfriend who is still probably a virgin, but is ready to like take that next step in their relationship. And then turning and then into that end. Yeah, like turning yeah. into like the vampira dominatrix, just insane. Like to the point where she goes from looking fifteen and sixteen to looking twenty five, like within the course of the movie. It, it was incredible. Uh, Roddy McDowell as Peter Vincent, obviously for yeah. the same reasons. And then I also had my blood rage. Todd MVP who was <laughs> fucking evil Ed Stephen uh, Joffreys was making some choices as evil Ed where it was so bad it was good for me <laughs> and like the thing was like because initially when it came out of the movie I was like I wish the movie would have waited even longer for the reveal that he was for sure a vampire yeah leave a little bit of ambiguity sure yeah like I wish we would have stayed like mystery of like him trying to break into the house or him continuing to spy on them and keep revealing maybe have two or three more instances of really weird shit that could still technically be explained is like everyday innocent behavior and like you know so i kind of wanted that vampire reveal to be later on in the movie and to stay in that childhood exploration phase but you know in retrospect and now that i've had time to think about it no i think the movie makes sense in the way it flows and even if it doesn't the characters are what i'll always come back to as to why i get it now i get why fright night is revered and so i'm glad that by the time we've come around to recording this podcast i have come around more on it to the point where now I'm just like no this is a solid movie one more thing that I want to say that just really also makes this great to me is me being the coward of the podcast I have to do my spiel how accessible is this for people who want to get into horror movies but need to build up their tolerance this more than any movie is right on the very fence of like maybe being too scary but being just scary enough that you can handle so I would say that probably more than any other movie we've covered this is a perfect starter horror movie because there are some scenes that are legitimately scary the scene where like his girlfriend turns and like makes that monstrous face and like is lunging at him is fucking terrifying imagery yeah but then like there's also a lot of light heart in this this movie it's not quite blood rage insanity but it's a mix of like maybe that no fucks given energy but a lot more refined and an actual plausible storyline kind of mixed in and so yes i would say that horror newbies this is probably like one of the scariest entry-level horror movies you can get into so if you really want to like test your limits like this is a great one to start off with yeah it's a good like 13 to 15 year old kind of entry range and like i saw this movie like way younger certainly but if horror is not necessarily your bag at an early age if you don't have like a weird affinity for it like i did some somewhere in that early teenage range because again these are teenage characters so you have like somebody to relate to that is directly you that is who the target audience is of the movie for sure but yeah like to kind of circle back around to what we were talking about earlier somebody being able to execute their creative vision without interference it kind of blew my mind when I was doing some behind the scenes research on this and listening to interviews, this 
might be one of the smoothest, no problems, no fuss movie productions, not just of horror movies, but of any movie ever made by a major studio. Wow. <laughs> and Tom Holland was basically just left the fuck alone entirely by the studios. They just kind of said, cool, here's your money and go make your movie. And that was kind of it. The worst thing that happened was Ragsdale like fell down some stairs and broke his ankle yeah. and they had to rearrange the schedule. But like, that's the worst thing that happened in this entire movie. There was no like gutting the movie from an editing standpoint and taking out all this other stuff and neutering it. There was no, we don't fundamentally don't want this casting so we're gonna fight with the director on that there's no cast and crew members like being you know over the top divas and having lots of problems and attitude like there was just nothing like really insane that happened with the making of this movie and so Tom Holland was really able to just fully execute the movie that he wanted because he had nobody really looking over his shoulder that's a breath of fresh air to hear coming off of fucking blood rage again where you learned that yeah the production was a goddamn mess too many cooks in the kitchen yeah. kind of thing yeah. yeah but yeah apparently tom holland came up with the idea for fright night while he was writing cloak and dagger and columbia pictures essentially just took the bait on him directing it as well um he had already written a few things up to this point so columbia was just like fuck it yeah if you want to direct this we trust you you're fine the cast also had two weeks of rehearsal which tom holland came from a stage acting background so to him rehearsal was important and that's one of those things that i do enjoy whenever movies do have that period and they take that time to let their cast actually rehearse together because it helps them build relationships and gel and get to know each other and trust each other. But it also lets you work out all the kinks before you actually have to go and execute and film. And then you're burning time and money trying to figure things out on the set in the moment when you could just work all that shit out through rehearsal. And that's basically like what happened here is, you know, all the cast got to know each other and actually like bond and be friends before they went on to set to start shooting crazy thing too this was columbia pictures lowest budget production at the time it was you know, nine million dollars because they were apparently all fucking in on the movie perfect the fucking like weird dramedy with jamie lee curtis and travolta about like the la health spa scene in the 1970s bro i don't i don't even know what the <laughs> fuck you're talking about i've never heard of this movie right and it's one of those like notorious huge flops like who fucking greenlit this right i love jamie lee curtis and i've never heard of this fucking movie. yeah but <laughs> columbia like had all their eggs in that basket and that's the movie they were focused on that's the movie they knew was going to be their big hit and award winner so they just left tom holland alone to make this fucking movie with no real interference meanwhile fright night makes 25 million dollars on a nine million dollar budget and then perfect ended up only making 13 million on a 20 million dollar budget like wow. now how this movie gets made <laughs> with all of its makeup and special effects and everything else for less than half of what that one did. I guess it's just the two stars commanded big paychecks, but that is one of those weird things about studios just underestimating horror as a genre. Yeah. And the popularity of it, you know, that like, like, like I said, who's heard of Perfect at this point? Besides <laughs> people making fun of it yeah. and yeah fright night was the number two horror movie of the year and the only movie that beat it was nightmare on elm street 2 which 
you know, oh, after yeah. the success of the first movie, that's obvious. That's yeah. a gimme, right? And like I said, Ragsdale broke his ankle during the shoot, but there were no real problems otherwise. So that's kind of the wild thing about this movie is it seems like every movie that we discuss on this show, it was re-edited. The director had the movie taken away from them. All these controversial edits and cuts to the movie. Tons of production problems. Tons of last minute acting shakeups and just all this drama getting a movie made and just how it's such a miracle anytime a movie can come together with the amount of factors and people and just all the other bullshit that goes into making a movie and this one just kind of sailed on in which is definitely different for everything that we've discussed on our show to your point i just kind of looked up real quick because i was i was thinking i knew the date but i didn't know about you know off the top of my head and i was like let me see it i wonder if tom had made the film two years later which is when sony actually acquired columbia tristar would it have been a different story right would fright night be the same fright night i bet you it would have been a completely different thing yeah dude that's a good point because i i agree I'd... sony has a history of bad put their hands yeah, in yeah. interference across the board so yeah and it was you know it was that was such a fresh acquisition like and we've we've always seen it and just is just like something that i always speak to because being so close to the industry and like knowing what this guy did and how much stuff he gave us but when at&t acquired warner you know, at Warner Media and HBO and all those subsidiaries, the dude Richard Plimper, that guy's been yeah. a fucking exec at, at HBO for 30 years. Something He's been there for like over 30 years, but he's been exec for 20 years. Yeah. Sopranos, Game of Thrones, whatever you love, whatever anybody listening to this podcast loves about HBO. It's because of him, yeah. He greenlit it 100%. And literally AT&T came in. I don't mind bad-mouthing because this is out of Richard's mouth. He's like, AT&T came in. They had like a showcase or whatever, and, and it was him, and then it was like the new head of... Of whoever was going, you know, being the connection from AT&T to Warner Media, right? And they're having this little like pep rally or whatever, and and Richard's like, yo, you know, no matter what, content, 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 right? And then this guy literally like, it's like that fucking thing, that, the stereotype where the guy walks up, the suit walks up, and he's like, no, but profit, profit, profit. Yeah. And Richard said he knew, he knew at that moment he wasn't going to be able to stay and work for them anymore. And like, we just, we've seen it too often. Yeah. When News Corp took over, you know, 20th Century, like in all this shit there, you know, the studio systems have changed, but we've always seen like a new president of production is placed, you know, yeah. because there's anytime there's a regime change you end exactly. up seeing so many projects that were in motion stop 100% and so many projects that were in motion come to a completely different resolution yeah a lot of people who work there that were shepherding in other projects they leave stuff goes with them like yeah it's just one of those weird things like you said what could have been had he made this two years later we fundamentally wouldn't have the same movie if Sony yeah. was the one putting it out man so. I'm glad we got you on as a guest because here Hearing all of that just adds a new light and appreciation to the production of this movie. Kind of learning that it went so smoothly from Aaron and then you mentioning all that because I, I had no idea about any of this industry history. That casts a new light as to how just everything kind of seemed like, I'm sure a lot of it was effort and I'm sure a lot of it was just everyone doing their part in this movie but also it sounds like there was a bit of just right timing, right place. Yeah. 100%. And, and a lot of <laughs> politics, always. Yeah, there's always yeah. studio politics that play into this kind of bullshit. Aaron, you're gonna also need to edit around them because we want that AT&T sponsorship. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck yeah. AT&T. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah, no, I'm totally fuck fucking AT &T. kidding. Oh, okay. AT&T okay. is never going to be giving us no money. Fuck yeah. them. But hey, AT&T, if you want to throw us some money, we'll, we'll kiss the ring. Whoever, yeah. yeah. <laughs> One of the other big things about this movie, and this is where I come
come to the movie because, you know, I like this movie. I've always enjoyed this movie. I have way more of an appreciation for it from a special effects standpoint than anything else. Like, I, I love the characters in this movie, but, like, the thing that got me into this movie growing up and seeing it on cable constantly, it was, like, always fucking on sci-fi or USA or TNT or whatever. The special effects in this movie are fucking great. The makeup effects, the actual visual effects, like, everything in this is bananas good. Richard Edlund did all the visual effects, and, I mean, he started with ILM on Star Wars. Like, OG Star Wars. He went on to do Raiders of the Lost Ark, Empire Strikes Back, Poltergeist, Return of the Jedi, all under ILM, and then he formed his own company, Boss Films, in 83. And that's where he went on to, like, actually do Ghostbusters and Big Trouble in Little China, Die Hard, Poltergeist 2, The Hunt for Red October, Alien 3, Cliffhanger, Air Force One, like, all these huge, big productions. And Boss Films is one of the few companies that actually made that jump from practical effects into digital effects pretty seamlessly. Like, a lot of effects houses kind of hit that brick wall where they couldn't transition into kind of the new methods of filmmaking, and they just died off little by little. And Richard Edlund won Oscars for Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Special Achievement Oscars for the other Star Wars movies. So, like, dude knew what he was doing, and they brought him in to do all these effects. Yeah, with a career like that, for fucking sure. Yeah, and the great thing was, he had just come off Ghostbusters before making this movie. So, he has said, like, it was a great learning experience being on Ghostbusters with a huge budget and being able to make mistakes on somebody else's dime. Because when he came to this movie, where they had a fraction of the budget that Ghostbusters had, he knew what they needed to do. They could execute and not make the same mistakes and really kind of bring their A-game. But they kind of honed everything on Ghostbusters. And just, there's wild shit in terms of like the, the visual effects in this. With you bringing up Ghostbusters, one little aside I wanted to bring up was that uh, while it is no Ray Parker Jr. Ghostbusters theme. Oh, bro. <laughs> Fright Night theme over the credits is pretty good. The Fright Night theme is yeah. pretty good. Written by Joe Lamont and performed by the Jay Giles Band. Now, here's the fucking travesty. And Spotify, I know we like, we're a nothing podcast that doesn't make any money, but we are on your format among our podcatchers. Um, you have the Ghostbusters theme by Ray Parker Jr. Awesome. Great. Love it. It's on our Spotify playlist. Where the fuck is the Fright Night theme <laughs> song? I can't find it on Spotify. It's not on there. Once you add it, I will put it on our Spotify playlist because it is wild. The lyrics alone are well, <laughs> chef's kiss. Yeah. They're like, come on, guys. Yeah, totally. But yeah, I, I love the visual effects stuff in this. There's just so much handcraftedness to the visual effects in this movie that I really appreciate. Like, even just shit like the contact lenses that they wear. Yeah. That's just one of those things we take for granted now because every fucking movie, they just do it digitally. Like, I just watched New Mutants where Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones, like, her her whole mutant power is she turns into a wolf. She's a fucking like werewolf character. And every time she wolfs out, her eyes go, you know, into wolf eyes, but it's always fucking CGI. In this movie, they had colored contact lenses for their vampire mode, but these were like hand painted. Oh, yeah and textured and lacquered and had to be like sanded and buffed down by hand. They could only wear them for fucking 20 minutes before they caused cornea damage. Fuck. Just all this insane stuff that went into like making a movie at the time and all the like hard work and ass busting that people had to do to get it right. You know, like Bierce had a pair of her contacts that were like so fucking uncomfortable and then they realized like days later like, oh shit, we forgot to sand these down. <laughs> <laughs> stuff like oh, that. Or like Jeffrey's 
wore his pair for too long one day. He wore them for like 40 minutes and they like actually caused cornea damage, you know? Dude, that's borderline fake gun prop, not loaded properly. Yeah. Kind of dangerous like, levels. Like that yeah. used to happen. And that's part of the reason yeah. why people embrace digital effects so much now because it's just easy. It's just easy to be like, fuck it, we'll do it afterward. We'll do it in post. We'll fix this later. Then you have fucking Mad Max Fury Road going back to that where like they did as much practicality as yeah. they could. When you watch that documentary, Derek, I can only imagine you're in awe now of what you saw that made it to the screen from Fury Road. But when you hear them talking about some of how they made the stunts, like, bro, that documentary takes it to a whole nother level yeah. because you're like some of the shit you're looking at that should not have been fucking like safe to perform yeah 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 i've read tidbits here and there and they sound like almost unbelievable on one of my tabs i have the documentary pulled up so i'm gonna save it to watch i might even watch it later tonight oh yeah and it makes you just appreciate like how much work goes into the movie so again like i'm still talking about like the visual effects of the makeup but to that point sarandon's makeup yeah when he's in like full vampire yeah. mode that took fucking eight Eight hours of work. Eight hours of work with multiple people doing all of his makeup. Is it him in makeup? Like, yeah, yeah, it no, wasn't it's, like it's totally him. It's not like a stunt double or anything. Yeah, yeah. And the crazy thing is, he would get antsy having to sit there for fucking eight hours before they even yeah. start their shooting yeah. day, right? And he just like he was miserable doing it, but he had stage makeup experience, so he would work on his hand makeup while everybody else was like working on his face wow. prosthetics. Like he he actually put on his like finger extensions yeah, yeah. and painted them and everything else, and then when Whenever they would switch to doing his hair, he would actually do his like face painting. So like he even got involved in all that process to get all this going. That just gives me renewed appreciation for 100%. Stephen Joffrey's and Amanda Beers as well when they got put in their makeup. I mean, shit, even Evil Ed, he might have more makeup in some scenes than well, uh does. That that's Sarandon. what I was about to say. Yeah, his when he goes full wolf at the end, that whole wolf body makeup took 18 wow. hours to complete. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Man. And then you still have to go do a whole shooting day. That's crazy. 18 hours, right? And the crazy thing is they were going to put saliva around the mouth and they accidentally used prosthetic glue. So it literally just like glued <laughs> his mouth shut instead of the regular like methyl cellulose. He was like, yeah, this tastes kind of weird. And they realized, oh shit, we used actual prosthetic glue. So they had to like stop Crap. and like undo all yeah, of that, that to like literally unglue his mouth. Fired. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the kind of shit like <laughs> you, you only make that mistake once. Once. One time. Yep. One time. You know, Derek, when you talked about like having, an, I guess, a little bit more respect and like what it makes me think about is as a filmmaker, as a director, like when you think about different actors processes and sometimes we don't think of this on a day to day basis or just, you know, like we should be thinking about it all the time when we're watching films and thinking about different actors processes. But like it makes me think about, you know, and I'm, I'm going to go straight back to Chris Sarandon and, you know, putting his fingers together while they were doing everything else. But, you know, all I can think about is that draws such a like respect for the craft itself where Heath Ledger in Dark Knight, he pushed Nolan to say, hey, let me do my own makeup, right? I think in a way, in a very weird way that only an actor would understand, specifically that actor, it's giving them more ownership to the role and to the character and yeah. it gets them to the game in a way, right? And I think Chris, if he's any sense of a artistry of what acting truly not only is or what can be, like he's probably putting those fingers on and it's, it's bringing him that closer to where he needs to be, you know, for those moments. Because for me, it's acting 
everything has to be about ownership completely, right? And I know I'm, I am no actor. I've taken my theater classes to try and get closer to the craft and, you know, I guess to the actual method. But I like to sit back and then just kind of like course correct, right? To get where we need to be or help them get where we need to be. But like, I can only imagine that sensibility of like putting yourself into someone else's shoes. The greatest thing about actors is all actors do and all anyone does really on a film set is answer questions or solve problems. Yeah. And that's my, that's always my approach to directing is all I'm going to do is like, let me ask you a question. We need to try and solve that together. You know what I mean? So I can feel like putting the fingers on just drew him that closer to where he needed to be to answer whatever Tom Holland's questions were right on the day or whenever for the shoot. But I don't know. I, it, it's that kind of stuff that really like gets me hype. It's those moments, those small, you know, subtle, I guess, moments where it's like that may have not spoke to most anyone else in that moment, but it probably was really speaking to Chris Sarandon. And that gives me a better understanding of another aspect, which I totally overlook a lot of times, admittedly, especially with Fright Night, of your appreciation for this film. Going to this podcast, I didn't think we would spend that much time even just talking about the makeup effects, which it's not right or wrong. It's just how everyone, different viewpoints coming together. But it is something that should be highlighted when you really stop and think about it. That is literally 18 hours Mm -hmm. just to get a couple shots. (laughs) That is dedication to the craft. So that kind of stuff that y'all were talking about specifically with Sarandon like doing his own hand makeup while they're doing his facial makeup it's not method acting but that is the type of forward acting where you are bringing your own personal passion into it that I respect a hell of a lot more than like fucking Jared Leto pranking people on the set of Suicide Squad to get in quote unquote Joker character like that to me that is a much more respectful way of acting is and trying to get into that character instead of like the quote unquote method acting because like I just as a viewer the two types of actors that I think I appreciate the most are the ones where the actor that's just like, you know, how did you do this role? I just showed up stood in place <laughs> said my lines yeah or the actors like this with chris randon who has a multifaceted experience and respect for the craft that like okay well you're doing my face i'm gonna do my hands yeah so let's get this done and it's a common acting thing too but holland had all of them like sit and write a two to three page bio for their characters and write like a background for their characters so they like know in their own yeah. heads what that character is supposed to be that is such a better way of method acting acting than the actual method acting things we hear about of like yeah. I'm gonna go live in the woods for a month and act like I'm in the 1800s again to get in role for this no that just makes you a giant pain in the ass to work with yeah <laughs> those are always to me the actors that you can tell show up on the day and like really put in some work and this is why they hire some of these actors whether good or bad there are actors that you know will show up on the day and they're gonna do their thing right nobody is worried about what's Tom Cruise gonna do on the day, right? Can he show up? Nobody's worrying about Tom Hanks. They just have this history, this filmography that speaks volumes. I don't agree necessarily with, because I've heard stories of, and I I can't think of the the director right now, and I'm not even going to say, but like directors literally like tricking actors on set. You know, not just actors doing whatever with their method, but like... Manipulating, And manipulating, yes, is the best word, manipulating. Well, I will say it, because I was just watching that William Friedkin thing, but like all the notorious stories that you hear about him, like literally fucking firing guns on set to get reactions out of people, right? Like that kind of bullshit. I thought he was one, but I was like, I was like, I think it was Friedkin, but the last thing I'll say is, is kind of what both of y'all just kind of echoed, how beneficial it can be for an actor to really do, you know, have backstories and do their homework and do their work. I remember I was watching a behind the scenes documentary, I don't remember the film. The director of um, Colin Firth, 
King's Speech. I think his name is Tom Holland. You're thinking of the Tom King's Speech. Tom Hooper. Tom Hooper. Yeah. Thank you. Hooper. Thank you. Hooper. Tom Hooper. Hooper. Yeah. So who did Cats? Yeah. Right. Because yeah, <laughs> up to that point, he had a great. A great. You're right. I, I've looked up his, his his filmography. He's had a good career. And then Cats. Cats was just very very yeah, unfortunate. Yeah. Cats, yeah. Cats is bad. But uh, but Tom Hooper was <laughs> on set, and I think it was King's Speech. But he was giving direction to Helena Bonham Carter, and then yeah. he was explaining this shot to her, right? And like, bro, like, like I'm, I eat this shit up as a filmmaker because it removes the curtain way more than it should. But he tells her, "Hey, it's gonna be a wide shot, and this is what's gonna be, yada yada yada, and you're gonna be at the window, right?" And you know what she tells him? She says, "Well, I don't think." my character would be at the window doing this. Like, I'm just standing there. Why am I just standing there? And like, she's just giving him as much push as she could fucking give him in the moment. Yeah. And as a director, you got two options. You can either try and compromise or you got to fucking like change your shot. You're not getting what you thought you were getting originally because time is money, of course. But like the greatest thing that I took from that is like just humbling yourself as a filmmaker, but also knowing that like this is a collaborative art form above anything else, right? You've got to be in sync and you've got to be on the same page. 100%. I think the greatest filmmakers understand that it goes down to the fucking PA, right? Yeah. Chris Nolan. They say on a Chris Nolan set, someone who in all rights, and I, I know this is a shitty thing to say, but in all rights, he doesn't need to fucking talk to a PA, right? He's Christopher yeah. fucking Nolan. He doesn't need to talk to the gopher who gets coffee and does the basic stuff, yeah. At all. If Christopher wanted to, he doesn't need to talk to anybody but his DP he doesn't need to talk to any other department head or any other department, but they say that Chris will get his coffee, he'll go to set early, and he'll literally talk to everybody. Yeah. How's your day? Like, do you know what the sides are today? Like, I'm pretty excited. Like, just just bullshitting. Everybody's got to bring it. 100%. And everybody's got to be motivated 100%. and everybody's got to be on the same page. Yeah. I think people forget the value of culture on set. Yeah. We talk about culture in other industries and things like that, but people forget about a director, his job above everything else. He's supposed to, like, lay down the culture of the set. Yeah. That's the biggest thing. It's like a filmmaker or excuse me, a director has one real job, you know, like a CEO of a company. That is your set and you're supposed to like make sure that set is the best it can be so that people will perform at the highest quality. And to that point, Chris Sarandon was very hesitant to come on to this movie because his prior horror movie experience had been The Sentinel, like you mentioned earlier, Derek. And he had a miserable fucking time making The Sentinel, as I think we've like talked about. Yeah, that <laughs> still bums me out because I forgot about that. Yeah, and that's the thing. Michael Winner, the director of The Sentinel, is a fucking monster human like he is one of these just like awful human beings wow. period like i have never heard anybody speak positively about michael winter in any case right and likewise Holland wanted to direct Fright Night because he was so disappointed by how his last script was adapted. And Michael Winner was the director who did that script. Oh, wow. So, like, both of them just had such a bad experience from either of their previous movies. And it was all because of the culture of negativity and, like, miss management and just not doing things the right way like not having a collaborative environment that soured everything for both of them and it makes sense because when i i googled michael winter while you were talking about that first thing that popped up was like one of the first big names to be named going back to me too and harvey yeah. weinstein oh wow like this guy yeah. is a My, piece michael of winter is a monster yeah yeah but yeah chris sarandon ultimately was won over by the script of this movie um and he you know liked the opportunity to play a villain but the main thing was just he became friends with tom 
Holland and he realized like this is somebody I can work with that I can trust and we can collaborate and like come together on this thing so that does make all the difference yeah. many many times it's not just showing up and doing the job you know not everybody can necessarily do that let's be real like you're crazy psychopaths like Tom Cruise who like have that insane more than human level of being able to like show up and bring it yeah you know it takes like getting into that zone and to kind of like step back a second if we're talking about like the characters and them kind of taking ownership of that to toot my own horn a little bit I have high school acting experience I mean I was in like theater and debate and all that kind of stuff growing up and um I played the beast in Beauty and the Beast when we did that and I did my own makeup what no way yeah yeah so (laughs) I did my own makeup for that play and we had pretty crazy show budgets and we rented sets from like an off-Broadway group and rented legit costumes and everything but I did my own makeup every night for that show because it helped me like you said kind of get into character and it helped me also learn like how does my face move yeah when I make you know like faces and I react to things like how does that look how does that makeup translate like it really helped me kind of figure out how to get into that character and how to translate that character and how to like make the makeup you know work the best it can on my face and not just have somebody else like put me in fucking weird lion makeup or whatever but it helped me like also kind of get in the zone so there is something to that and I like kind of reading like where these guys came from for all their different characters you know Sarandon specifically said like he did all this research on like fucking bats and he realized that 80% of bats are frugivores they eat fruit right fruit bats which is why he's fucking constantly chomping on apples and oranges and shit I was wondering why he was doing that that's (laughs) such like a anti-vampire thing like in most vampire lore and vampire movies if you eat human food it's like not good for you because it's not blood like we joked about it recently but what we do in the shadows anytime that they eat human food they like just fire hose vomit Vomit, (laughs) so like that was such a weird thing in the movie I was like why the fuck is he constantly eating fruit and they like showed a bowl of fruit and I was like no vampires don't eat food what is that but then he was like yeah no like fruit bats like 80% of bats like eat fruit so yeah why would I not just eat fruit too what's wrong with that but like just the way that he's thinking about that and working like I can't think of any other vampire movie where like that is a thing it's a constant yeah 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 that's cool that's really cool yeah that's a cool little thing that I I didn't know that Roddy McDowell he kind of came to the movie because the character of Peter Vincent is specifically a reference to Peter Cushing and Vincent Price yeah oh Vincent Price doesn't he speak like this Vincent Price yeah so they offered Price the role but he was basically retired at the time and he was kind of in ill health yeah but the Columbia exec that was kind of Holland's patron producer suggested Roddy McDowell well and on that note his character in this movie I had to look it up to make sure you were that convinced it was fictional for just this movie because he does such a good homage to like the Vincent Price type of horror movie monster fest character that I was just like I just gotta make sure that Roddy McDowell didn't do this previously (laughs) in the 60s or 70s I was like reading some comics earlier in the week and it definitely made me like get that itch for Count Crowley to come back that was a pretty solid series actually I'm organizing my comics and uh, gonna sell off a lot of them and I came across those issues and I'm gonna hold on to those issues because that was such a good series yeah so Roddy McDowell again to kind of give you like a little bit of an idea of like what his process was with his character right he specifically modeled his character off of the fucking cowardly lion from the Wizard of Oz. Holy and just that, shit. Like, 
blustery, like put up a front, but then like, you know, shrivels when it comes to anything else, right? That's great. I love that. <laughs> that makes so much sense. And I like yeah. this quote as well. So this is like a quote from Roddy McDowell. My part is that of an old ham actor. I mean, a dreadful actor. He realizes it, but he doesn't admit it. He had a moderate success in an isolated film here and there, but all very bad product. Basically, he played one character for like eight to ten films, for which he probably got paid next to nothing. And unlike stars of horror films who were very good actors and played lots of different roles, such as Peter Lorre and Vincent Price or Boris Karloff, this poor son of a bitch just played the same character all the time, which was awful. (laughs) And then he disappeared from sight. 15 years beforehand. Poor son of a bitch is yeah. the best way to describe his character in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> He's been peddling these movies to late night TV, various syndicated markets. He'd go six months in Iowa, six months in Podunk. He's got such a sad life. He's sort of cowardly. And then he finds this strength as a human being. The fact that he put that much thought into this character's backstory and motivation and everything comes through in the movie. Like, you know, everything you need to know about his character character and that's what brings so much heart to this movie is you're not just seeing charlie brewster grow up and mature and like become more confident and more like sure of himself and you're not just seeing like amanda bierce also come into her own but you're seeing like peter vincent really kind of own his persona and his career and make something out of that and like have something to be proud of and latch on to and claim you know and like that kind of character arc is so fucking good yeah in a movie like no this definitely we don't have that kind of stuff to go a little deeper real fast so so think about the duality of of what he's trying to do as the actor in the film you know but yeah so he said he's a hammy a hammy actor but then think about peter vincent specifically peter vincent is also in a way a shitty vampire hunter right and and what <laughs> yeah what i love yeah. about that is like think about the very first frame that we see of peter vincent he lifts up the stake and it's flipped it's it's upside yeah. down he's chasing after her with it with <laughs> backwards with the, with the stake backwards it's such a like slow reveal i think what i loved about that is like when you when you think about that on the level of a filmmaker you're like the actual character of peter vincent is in a way kind of a shitty half-assed vampire hunter but then also the actor himself is is this hammy actor who probably is is like yo this is just a check right like i'm getting this check to go yeah from point a to point b and making my ends meet as we clearly see when amanda bierce is like i have a 500 dollars savings bond for college he's just like done <laughs> you got me <laughs> but i think what's so great when you just said like the character because character arcs are everything to me but like is i think what's so great about this character and maybe this is like i think talking about it more it's just because sometimes it's hard for me to say like well this is why this film has you know over the years been my you know what i mean but like sometimes talking to it you can just hear it yeah but like specifically about his character is think about above everyone else jerry dandridge knows who he is yeah from beginning to end he knows exactly who he is brewster knows essentially who he is nobody else believes him but he knows who he is you know the girlfriend knows who she is every character in that film in a way they are rooted into the heart of who they are you know and who they'll be from beginning to end whether there's growth or not but then we're like you said we're 
were laid and maybe shit I'm now thinking about it like Derek said it you said it maybe that's why he is the fucking best character in the film you are introduced to this person when the veil is completely removed he is a caricature of himself yeah he is in no way who he can be but who he also must be at a certain point yeah when he finds out you know when he opens his little cigarette mirror and and realizes this shit's real and he is fucking scared like he is shitting himself and like i love that scene where he runs out and he gets in the car and he's like let my fucking door go bro like i gotta get the fuck out of here like i love the paleness in his face like the fear and shock in his face you know but one thing i love aside from that is like we see someone truly grow over the film i think it's on the stairs first off that fucking like foyer like i love it's so good that set that stained glass window at the top of the staircase is so fucking iconic yeah i didn't think there would be like a foyer kind of set up like that that would be more iconic than like the entrance to the resident evil mansion yeah yeah yeah, but like now i see where the resident evil mansion like was inspired because this fucking looked like the spencer mansion it was so good it it was yeah it's awesome it is and honestly like let's bring it back even full circle like it's a true testament to tom holland's writing and many i don't know if you you had read uh in some of your research but i i read something where they said like tom holland said years later at a horror con some horror con he locked himself up for three weeks and he he had he had Fright Night written in three weeks, and literally he was fucking like in stitches laughing the whole process. Yeah, he enjoyed writing it. He yeah. enjoyed writing it so much, and like I was like, that is a testament to how good a, and how solid of a script it is. But like looking at it and reflecting, like Peter Vincent's character really is kind of in a way he's that character that has the most redemptive character arc. Where yeah. if we follow regular you know structure of story, you know it's like boy meets girl boy loses girl boy gets girl back right so for him it would be introduced to the kids i'm gonna kind of play along then he finds out oh shit shit's real he really is a fucking vampire i'm going to hide and cower and then it's like he redeems himself and becomes the vampire hunter that he never really was on television and it's not even the moment where he and charlie go into the house where like he is going that far it's the moment where charlie is taken out and vincent can just get the fuck out of there and ditch and nobody will ever know but it's the moment where he like says no fuck it yeah and he turns back around to go back in the house that's where he like comes full circle and we'll talk a little bit about the sequel once we get done with this conversation but one of the biggest problems with the sequel to this is that it completely resets charlie back to zero yeah literally the opening scene is a recap of the first movie and then you cut to like his therapist saying and none of that happened right yeah yeah yeah. it was a group hallucination you imagine all this it was all whatever and so charlie is reset back to like vampires aren't real this is crazy right this could never happen blah 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 yeah i i read that like he comes to believe that it was all just a serial killer yeah who acted right? like a vampire but what i loved about the sequel was peter vincent doesn't start over yeah peter vincent is full ahead like no i'm a fucking vampire <laughs> killer like he owns it so fucking hard in the second movie and he comes back in but he's just full like nah i've killed vampires vampires i've got this let's do it i'm here for you bro speaking of which i think the thing too that that works so well is the movie takes its time and his redemption and he doesn't just like jump right into it because there's so many movies i mean even modern especially in modern movies but yeah just movies in general problem is the reluctant hero just goes from a to b switches on a dime like borrowing wwe again a heel to face turn yeah. just so suddenly yeah. and while i i wish it took more time and like the mysteries 
aspect of it. I do appreciate how much time it takes in him going from coward to hero because it makes it so believable. Because like yeah. even after he finds that information out that vampires are real and all that, there are like two other opportunities where like he could be like, okay, yeah, it's time to help these kids. These kids' lives are literally in danger, and he still runs away. And yeah. That, yeah. I like the fact that initially he was still trying to run away until it was kind of forced upon him um, because it just makes that all the more believable because that's what people would do in a situation like that. That's the coolest thing is like if a vampire actually moved next door, no matter how much he lived in the shadow of this bravado, like, you know, being this Peter Vincent's vampire slayer, you know, like that wasn't him. And even when faced with it in real life, that still wasn't fucking him. I think that's the coolest thing is like we didn't grow up, you know, in the world that we live in in the real world. You know, we're not taught to hunt, you know, vampires and shit like Van Helsing is not my uncle. You know what I mean? So so it's pretty cool that like it literally is like we're faced with what it probably would really be like. Yeah, exactly. And you've got two options. You can either run or you can try and, you know, sit and fight. The thing that makes Fright Night so great is it, it runs the gambit of just tropes and themes and feeling like in one scene you get a classic horror movie bit. On another scene it's like dread inducing. In another scene it's fucking like romantic eroticism almost. <laughs> like <laughs> like any music. anything with Jerry trying to seduce Amy. Yeah. Uh, which how old was Amanda Beers at the time of the shooting? Because it was. She was 27. Okay that makes me feel a lot better because but she's still playing a high school. But she's still yeah. playing a high schooler <laughs> and Jerry Dandridge is this centuries old vampire which granted all in context like it's the apparently the reincarnation of his long lost lover okay whatever but then you have the moments of then like it's a straight up like being chased by monsters and then fucking evil ed's transformation to wolf was like straight out of american werewolf in london oh kind yeah, of transformation. yeah, yeah, yeah. like they take their fucking time but in reverse yeah, but in it reverse was interesting because it was yeah. backwards it was him going from wolf mode back to human again yeah and like they take their time and that scene is downright disturbing in certain parts of it but i feel like if jerry dandridge if he's the same way he is in this movie move next door you have your best shot because he goes from being like at the beginning especially like especially when he reveals himself to charlie in his bedroom that's top notch oh god this guy's a fucking predator who knows what he's doing yeah he goes from that to making like what we do in the shadows level choices of just like (laughs) just fucking kill them what are you waiting for yeah, like i know yeah. you like this cat and mouse game you're doing but yeah. like for a centuries old vampire who's apparently done this hundreds of times hey you're out in the fucking open like of course charlie brewster's gonna like find out you're a vampire because like you are not being like subtle at all about this in the middle of the night like literal women are screaming bloody murder at like two in the morning in a fucking <laughs> suburban <laughs> random prostitutes showing up in the suburban area is yeah. this this house yeah oh, it's that one okay i'm gonna go in this abandoned house and scream don't worry yeah so like you and your little like ghoul buddy played by jonathan stark who i did like in this movie as well but your ghoul familiar guy who's also undead are not being subtle at all a and then b like i feel like he was much more of a threat when he was in human form and the more he became a monster the dumber he got yeah because like his death (laughs) that's his own damn fault 100 percent. it's his own damn hubris and the noises he made though oh Ooh, those fucking lights. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, again, like, at the same time, there's a lot of comedy mixed into this. Now, granted, I don't yeah. think this is a horror comedy. I think this is a comedic horror movie. I still think it's a yeah. horror movie before it's a comedy, but there are those comedy moments. And just, like, the more that Jerry became at least outwardly demonic, the more incompetent he became as a villain to me. Yeah. But, like, I can't knock the movie for that because it's very endearing and everything else is so effective in this. Evil Ed is just over the top. 
goddamn Brewster. You're so cool, Brewster. Yeah. Evil Ed is one of those interesting characters to go back and look at now with our like modern day lenses because this movie definitely has a following in the queer community because of Evil Ed specifically. And you look at it now, and at the time in the 80s, I'm sure it was just like, well, he was the monster kid and he was kind of the outsider and whatever. Um, But you look at it now and there's definitely moments where you can tell he like might have a thing for Charlie Brewster. 100%. 100%. Right? Like there's a little bit of like a bromance there and he kind of has like a, I want to like be your friend and maybe be a little bit more than just your friend. Well, and and just his whole turning part where he's turned by Jerry is very homoerotic. Yeah, 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 100%. That, like, I think Tom's trying to push on you or implore on you, like, there's something here that's, like, the connective tissue, right? Yeah. There there was more, at least on Ed's side, like, there definitely was more there in how he, you know, he thought about, about Brewster, so. Yeah, and I'm glad it's there, too, because, like, it's so cool to see it in a movie that's this successful in the horror community and has been around since the early 80s in that community, and, I mean, just kind of on viewing it, especially through the modern lens, I do think that it was purposeful by Tom Holland, and... I do think it was a little bit forward thinking as well because like I think on the surface you could view it as like yeah like y'all were saying he's the strange kid outcast kid maybe even like psychopathic tendencies but no 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 that's like if you're just scratching the surface if you're really looking at the subtext there it's there like the line where he's like I'm gonna give you a hickey Brewster is yeah pre- that, that, that's pretty overt right? yeah exactly and I like to the way that this movie treats vampirism in general vampires are have always been like sexy right the idea of being a vampire you have that allure and you know vampires are just sexy in general to like everybody every background like that's kind of the whole thing is like you just become this lure to draw in victims you know like looking at it from the standpoint of ed can now essentially be who he wants to outwardly be and like express how he wants to feel because being a vampire lets him take that next step into like empower essentially and it's interesting because the movie doesn't really do it with any level of judgment either like that's one thing about the vampire stuff in this movie is it's not as overtly vampires are bad and evil as a lot of other movies tend to be it's just very fact of the matter that this guy is a vampire and he's doing bad things if you think about like the bad shit that dandridge actually does in this movie it's all unrelated to the vampire side of it he is a serial killer like we just talked about like he is murdering women next door you could still have that as the angle of like what his actual immoral bad deeds are and have nothing to do with vampires but the vampire thing specifically is interesting because it is not specifically evil like it is in so many other movies where like once you become a vampire you are just inherently evil it's interesting how like the movie doesn't cast judgment onto that part of it it's just who you are to dig a little deeper into that and and what we're talking about with evil ed's character it's like i wonder if there were any conversations between tom holland and that actor behind the scenes as far as motivation right like because if they had their backstories or whatever you know and us talking about the kind of like sexualized you know being vampires and like and all that i I do wonder if if like in a way maybe maybe evil ed getting uh brewster to become a vampire that would have put them on an even kill if that makes that wish fulfillment exactly where where i am your best 
best friend and you see me as a friend, but we've never been the same, right? And now if you become a vampire and I show you, because Ed always, he always thought of it as a gift from Jerry, right? Yeah. Like Jerry has bestowed upon me power and- The scene where he's facing off with Vincent, he definitely makes it seem like I am now better than I was. I am like more powerful. I like have this thing now. And Jerry gave me that. I wonder if there was every any maybe conversation that maybe it, it was, you know, under the surface, but where maybe Ed thought about like, hey, my motivation is if I can show him and kind of lure him to see that this isn't a bad thing, you know, maybe finally me and me and Brewster will be will be the same. Yeah. Maybe then he'll like me because we are the same, but like him in the way that we kind of previously thought about. And that's a relatable thing that I think everybody can think back and find that moment in their childhood growing up to relate to this and not even from like a sexual standpoint at all but everybody everybody had a friend that you actually genuinely enjoyed hanging out with and you would hang out with them outside of school but in school you would kind of be a little bit aloof and cold to them because there was like a weird social thing maybe it was like the kid who was a little bit weird or the kid who like had a weird family or whatever and so like you kind of gave them the cold shoulder at school but then you would hang out with them afterward like the moment where he specifically calls him evil at school and he like points about and says like hey fuck you (laughs) don't call me evil like everybody else gives me that shit but like i don't expect it from you because outside of school they're friends yeah you know so like there's definitely that thing And, and like you said like if he becomes a vampire as well then like they have this common thing that kind of links them more than just you know hey we like horror movies and we're kind of the weird kids yeah i think what's what's cool is like when you think about just the history of cinema and like the history of sometimes the relationships between two characters specifically friend characters even if there may have been you know underlying like things that pointed to maybe evil ed loving brewster in a specific way but it doesn't even have to be sexual sure yeah. but i think what's cool about that is unrequited love has always been a theme and a thread in in movies where you have these two parts and it's just like one has always been there and has always kind of been in the shadow in a way right and i think ed was always in the shadow to brewster because maybe brewster was a little more popular in school or whatever it may have been right but i think that's really cool too when you think about it is it doesn't necessarily have to come from i guess a sexual like lens but just i guess having love for someone that you truly care about in your own way right yeah there's that line in a uh, adaptation written by by Charlie Kaufman and you know the two Nicholas Cages I, I don't know their names at the yeah. moment but they talk about you know uh He's like, hey, how did you like that girl? You know, because she she would always talk about you behind your back and like you always were kind to her and she was always using you. Like, how did you not realize that? And the other Nicholas Cage says, uh, you are what you love, not what loves you. Yeah. You know, just implying that like my love was always my own. My love had nothing to do with anyone else. And I think that maybe that relationship w- with Ed and, and Brewster was always just that to Ed where it was like, I know I'm not the coolest or the smartest or the funniest or whatever, but you know, when we hang out outside of school like I feel my best self when I'm with Brewster you know what I mean and I yeah. think I think that's what Tom Holland kind of he was trying to like push and and kind of show us to where when Evil Ed did get that power then it became like this shift where it's like now I feel like I have something 
I want to be able to gift this to Brewster, right? And I want to be yeah. able to to really say that, hey, we we share something commonly that we never really evenly shared before. Yeah. yeah. And that imbalance of power between them now where, like, he's the vampire, so he's the one that, like, has the upper hand is also interesting. But, like you said, he's willing to, like, reach down and pull him up yeah. instead of lording that over him. Yeah. 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 I thought about this with everything with Evil Ed's whole arc as well. Something I do like is that that this movie, while I said it ran the gambit of like a bunch of different tones and even genres, it also runs a gambit of just vampire tropes in general because it starts yeah. off with that suaveness and sexiness and even like transcending sexuality kind of thing with the vampires, especially with Jerry in the beginning. But then they also are not afraid to flip the switch and make them just genuinely like these horrific monsters yeah it's not just two fangs when they transform they become demons yeah and then you also have the evil ed literally becoming like a wolf and that that's also in vampire lore yeah i like that they like change into different forms yeah. like yeah. you know he turns into mist at one point and he turns into the bat creature and the wolf and it's like a little bit of all the troops evil ed's halfway wolf and also has the cross burned into his forehead's really fucking cool looking yeah. and metal yeah. but amy peterson when like her mouth becomes too wide where oh, it's that, like yeah, 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 giant yeah. shark mouth. Giant shark mouth. <laughs> that, again, that is like the creepiest image in this movie to me. So this movie obviously ends with the little stinger of, you know, you see the little red two eyes red in the eyes, window yeah. and like somebody's still there and then you hear, you know, Evil Ed's laugh. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. Yeah, that's how it ends. <laughs> yeah. The original ending actually had Peter Vincent returning to host the show, kind of like we see, except he turns around to the camera and is like, guess what? Now I'm really a vampire ha 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 right and then Charlie and Amy both back at the house are just like oh shit so it was the ending we <laughs> wish happened for Game of Thrones where like he turns around looks at the camera no winter never left and his eyes turn blue <laughs> yeah but, um, <laughs> you know, they, they had talked about a sequel where Ed would come back as a werewolf. There was actually even a 27-issue comic series from Now Comics that followed Charlie and Peter with Ed kind of being the primary antagonist throughout all of it. But obviously we got Fright Night 2, which that kind of got made in response to the popularity of the first movie. Holland didn't have anything to do with it necessarily. And it was one of those where, like, a lot of people were interested in coming back but they were all busy doing other shit. So, like, Tom Holland was busy doing Child's Play with Chris Sarandon, and Amanda Bierce was shooting Married with Children, and Jeffries took the lead role in 976 Evil, which is kind of his only other big movie credit. But Fright Night Part 2 was directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, who is a John Carpenter colleague. He, like, co-wrote some stuff with John Carpenter, but then he directed fucking Halloween 3, which we have talked about on this show, and he did the It miniseries. Fright Night Part 2 gets a lot of hate. I have never watched it until now in prep for this show because I have heard nothing but bad things about Fright Night Part 2. Here's my hot take. Fright Night Part 2 is really fucking fun. It's goofy as shit. So the whole deal is Brewster is now in college and like we talked about earlier, like he's gone back to like, none of this was real. I just imagined all of it. He has a completely new girlfriend, which, you know, I guess Amanda Beers went to a different college, whatever. But then the whole deal is this group of vampires... 
I guess, let's say monsters in general, all show up being led by Jerry Dandridge's sister, sister yeah. right? So, like, she's the lead vampire. And you have fucking, like, John Grease, Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite, <laughs> playing a werewolf. And you've got that big, giant jaw motherfucker who was, like, the bad guy in Cobra and played Shao Kahn in the Mortal Shao Kahn, yeah, yeah. He's, like, their lurch, giant driver guy who's eating fucking bugs. And when they, like, slap him open like he just pours out with bugs and like deflates at the end of the movie there's this motherfucker with like aerosmith scarves and a flock of seagull haircut on roller skates who is like rolling around vampire and people and there's just like wild shit like the three of them all going bowling yes you know like there's just weird <laughs> shit in this movie but like julie carmen as dangerous sister is smoking hot oh she is and she's like this performance artist artist you know who's come to town and everything again i know that's a wild take but like it's really well directed i think tommy lee wallace is a really underrated director he just gets stuck with a lot of really bad and weird scripts for the most part we love halloween 3 we did a whole episode on halloween 3 i fucking love halloween 3 because that movie is bananas now that's season season of the witch right y'all like yep. season of yeah the witch? that's one that has yeah. nothing to do with michael myers right yeah i gotta it's with them with the masks and shit i gotta go back yeah. i haven't watched it in years dude it's, it's so really good. well directed but <laughs> it's a it. banana script right so that's the thing i think tommy lee wallace is just a really underrated director he just gets stuck with a lot of iffy projects yeah fright night part two way better than i was expecting again it is goofy as shit but it was way better than i was expecting and you know we won't talk about the remake a ton but the remake is also not terrible it takes a lot of the stuff from this movie, kind of reworks it, reinvents it in a way that updates it and modernizes it. The cast is all solid. You know, so like even the remake of this is not the worst. I say not the worst. It's better than not the worst. It's a pretty enjoyable sequel all said and done. Um, it's just a different vibe. But crazy thing is this, ultimately. Roddy McDowell loved playing Peter Vincent so fucking much. He planned a meeting with Carol Co. Pictures chairman Jose Menendez to discuss doing a third movie. And that shit never happened because Menendez and his wife were murdered by their two sons, Lyle and Eric. That's some fucking wild oh, wow. real life shit. Wow. The Menendez brothers murdering is like the reason why Fright Night 3 never happened. That is crazy. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. I, I took a second to think about what did process what you just said. That's crazy. Yeah. But as of 2019, Tom Holland has actually reacquired the rights. And literally as of October 28th of this year, a month ago, he has confirmed that he is working on a third film that's oh, going to pick yes. up from the original ones, and it is tentatively titled Fright Night Resurrection. Oh, wow. so it, it's going to like do what Halloween did, where it ignores the sequels and just picks up after the first movie? Essentially, yeah. So that'll be interesting to see. And he's like trying to get back all the original people if they want to come back. Oh my god, hell yeah. yeah. That would be pretty interesting, especially because like... Amanda Bierce isn't really an actress anymore. Like, she's kind of moved on and she produces and directs now. Yeah, like, yeah. she doesn't do any acting. Jeffrey's actually stepped away from acting and, like, had kind of a weird spell where he was doing actual hardcore porn for a while. And then he, like, came back to regular movie acting. So, it's interesting to kind of see where everybody is. Ragsdale has been doing TV stuff for 20 years. A lot of TV, yeah. Like, a lot he's of one TV. of the most working actors out there, yeah. So, I, I 
I'd be curious to see like where this goes because as beloved as this original movie is, there's certainly an audience for it. Yeah. You know? Like I don't see a major studio picking it up and trying to run with it. I could see Netflix or Hulu or somebody like that. Yeah, cool. Tom Holland will throw you, you know, a million dollars to make a Fright Night movie. Yeah. I will say though, through Bloomhouse, through that label, like Universal, in my opinion, has taken some some chances and they've paid off. Yeah. It's because Bloomhouse, they've created this business model uh, and Jason is just fucking like genius when it comes to logistics. But like, you know, there are some films that have done really, really well at the box office and they've been good. And like Universal has benefited yeah. 100% as distribution. So I, I think if anybody, and Universal always was like the monster, you know, the, the place where yeah. monsters live in Rome like so I think if anybody it's cool that they've now in a way taken back that title and what's always been theirs the classics that we fucking love you know originated at Universal whether it was Lon Chaney Jr. or Boris Karloff like all of the classics right like that's the shit that I also remember like yeah I, I love my Fright Nights and my other shit but those true classics like i think if anybody can do it from a distribution standpoint as a studio it probably would be universal yeah, yeah i i could see blumhouse doing it yeah. certainly yeah. and i think it wouldn't be the worst idea in the world to like partner holland up with a younger writer and that way you can kind of get it a little more contemporary and have a fresh set of eyes working with him who aren't as close to the project you know yeah but if he yeah. wants to direct it like you know fuck it let him direct it at this point or like hand it to somebody new and just like him write it but you know it wouldn't be the worst idea in the world like i would love to see a follow-up to this and from what i remember reading it was going to be like charlie brewster is now a single dad moves to a new suburb with his two teenage kids and dot 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 vampires i i think i read the woman that he's dating that he meets in this new town like is maybe a vampire something like that so like yeah you could go in a bunch of different directions with it certainly i was kind of perusing this supposed like resurrection film and like if he was able to get back a lot of the original cast even resurrecting jerry and evil uh, yeah. bringing back evil ed's character yeah so yeah any other final thoughts on fright night no, no i mean just basically if you haven't fucking seen it like check it out yeah yeah it's a lot of fun derek's used the best word like endearing like that's i, I when i think about it I, I there's probably a lot of like you know subconscious reasons for why it has just been my go-to because i don't know if you remember manny I, I remember the second film the two films that i talked about i threw at you uh fright night but then i threw at you waxwork yeah we'll have you back for waxwork because i do want to watch i want i want to discover waxwork so we talked about that michael winter dude Anthony Hickox is a fucking Michael Winner, if ever there was a Michael Winner. Like, yeah, <laughs> I've heard bad things about him. <laughs> He's a monster. Yeah, He is so, like, just out there. So, because I know we talked about, like, limited editions and shit. Did you get that Vestron set? I did, yes. Yeah. But what's cool about that fucking set, and think about, like, someone, like, you know, not being able to see and then seeing for the first time. For me... Something that is natively has been 4-3 my whole fucking life. Yeah. Something that's just always looked like shit because you've only ever watched it on VHS. 100%. 100%. <laughs> and then seeing it in like Blu-ray oh and it's God. just like a whole new movie. Yeah. In full 16-9. Yeah. My mind was fucking blown. And like, oh my God, I fucking, I, that was one of the greatest watches. 
cool. Well, uh, I guess that's going to be it for our discussion of Fright Night. Yeah, Kelly, because you brought up so many good insights being kind of in the industry yourself. We decided that we didn't want to just do a plot run through, that we just wanted to talk freely. Yeah, go watch the movie. Go, it, go watch, watch the movie. Yeah, go it's, watch the movie. It's regularly available on streaming at this point. I think I paid fucking $5 for it on iTunes yeah. this past week yeah. just to like have a digital copy that I could kind of watch on my laptop. It's been on all the streaming platforms. Yeah. I guess the only thing that I would say that sucks is if you want to buy a physical copy of this, good luck. Yeah. Because again, all the rights with Sony and all this bullshit that it's been tied up in, you cannot buy a physical copy of this movie right now in the US. If you want a copy, the easiest thing to do is buy the region-free Blu-ray from Eureka. They're a European imprint. Definitely. But it's a region-free Blu-ray. Just get that one, you're fine. But if you try to look for like the American copy from either Twilight Time or the old Sony copy, they are like over $100 out of print kind of bullshit. So just random to jump in, I fucking painstakingly fought for that Twilight Time, like stayed up all night because there was only 3,000 copies made. And they sold out. They sold out. 100%. Like super fast. But I I have that Twilight Time and it is unopened and it will remain unopened. And (laughs) I will not give it to Elias, my son. If if he hears this podcast years from now, he's not getting it. It will be buried with me in my coffin. (laughs) Just to give you an idea, I looked it up just out of curiosity on eBay. Unopened copies of the Twilight Time limited edition is $140 right now on eBay. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I'm really hoping that all this shit with Sony gets kind of smoothed out and a company like Scream Factory can get like a really good limited yeah. edition, like definitive everything kind of version of it. All right, cool, cool. Well, uh, Derek, you want to take us out? We are Watch of Dare Horror Movie Podcast, hosted by myself, the coward, and movie monster boy, Aaron. We are at Watch of Dare on Twitter and Facebook. Check out our Spotify playlist. The link is on our Twitter, pinned at the top. We are at all the podcatchers, Apple, Stitcher, Google, or not Google Play anymore, because that's no longer exists, but uh, Spotify, Amazon, a lot of stuff. Please rate and review us, especially on Podchaser and Apple. That's all I got. Kelly, do you want to plug anything that you're you're working on? No, nothing, nothing to plug at the moment. I mean, hopefully some things in the in the works but the the biggest thing that i'll say is you know let horror reign and and for the people who maybe don't watch as as many movies as maybe the three of us do watch or whatever but just just understand that you know there's something very powerful when it comes to cinema and cinema has always been there as this greatest form of not only escapism but i don't know cinema can definitely be more than than just images on the screen and and that's something i'll I'll end this on is appreciate you too and and thank you and aaron for inviting me but just really like pushing imploring people to like yo like I, I know this will never probably be a thing in most people's lives but I remember I had a video production teacher in, in college who was like hey I try to watch one movie and he used to always tell the class like Kelly probably watches more than one movie a, uh, a day but you know I, I, with the, the way of the world and what we're seeing with COVID and things like that is just don't give up on cinema yeah there's some great preservationists out there who are trying to preserve 35 millimeter shooting and, and things like that is just just understand that like Everything that you can tie into our world history, world literally fucking world history, cinema has always been there. 
no matter what region, what area of the world, what time period, cinema has always been there to try and, and express someone's perspective. I, I just, I implore filmmakers to keep using their medium to, to tell their truths and tell their stories. Uh, and I also, I, I hope that if a young youth is listening to this and is wondering, well, you know, well, maybe that's, I guess, out of my reach or whatever. Let me tell you from a kid who grew up in fucking Detroit, Michigan with uh, a rough childhood and, and and a lot of things stacked against them. I made it out and in my own way, you know, I'm doing things on my terms. So just know that whatever you put your mind to, yo, you can make it in for the young filmmakers. You can do it. Yeah. 100%. Just keep plugging and, and make it happen. But but that's the biggest thing is I would say is like, yo, like keep watching movies, y'all. Fuck yeah. Absolutely. And uh, last thing is a uh, big thanks to my little brother, Jesse Mansfield, for the music at the beginning and the ends of our episodes. As always, you can find him on Bandcamp under the name Party Gator. He's also got a bunch of other little side acts but uh yeah definitely check his stuff out throw him a couple of bucks get you some good tunes so all that said i guess the last thing we have to say is you're so cool sally <laughs> <laughs>